welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay, and we've got a great show for you this evening. We would like to encourage you to visit our webpage and blog talk radio and follow us if you would. We also could really use your retweets and recommendations to others so that they'll be able to find us and follow us as well. We've got a great lineup for you this evening. We've got all of our hosts, except for Elizabeth Christensen this evening. She will not be here because she is at the hospital with a family member. And so please keep her and her family in your thoughts and prayers. But we do have Dwayne Daughtry, Shauna Baldwin, and Daniel Sorotkin this evening as co-hosts. But the real treat this evening is going to be our interview with Nick Dubin, doctor of psychology and an advocate for autism and registry reform. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Nick Dubin was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder in 2004. He holds a bachelor's degree in communications from Oakland University, a master's degree in learning disabilities from the University of Detroit, and a specialist degree and a doctorate from the Michigan School of Professional Psychology. He has authored many books on autism spectrum disorders, including one entitled Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety. He has served on the board of directors of several organizations and has even authored a magazine column for the Autism Digest. And here's something most people don't know about Nick, but I just happen to know. He and his mother were contestants on the TV game show Jeopardy. I got to respect anybody who can go on Jeopardy and show everybody just what they know. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm great, Michael. How are you? I just need to correct you. I was I was on The Price is Right, which does not take nearly oh. uh, the kind of brain power that my mom needed when she was on Jeopardy, but we were both on a game show. Oh, man, I'm crushed. I was thinking Jeopardy, <laughs> Nick. The, that's been one of my goals in life is to become a successful game contestant on Jeopardy. So let me ask you this. You were diagnosed with sure. autism in 2004. Now, at the risk of being indelicate, how old were you and how did that come about? I was 27 years old. And like a lot of people, when they get their diagnosis, I had reached kind of a turning point in my life as far as a failed job. And it kind of made me go back to the drawing board and say, what's going on here? Why have I been struggling all these years? And I had a lot of diagnoses to go on early in life. I had dyspraxia, um, dysgraphia, which is having a hard time with handwriting. As a kid, I jumped up and down and flapped. I had no language. So there were a lot of clues to go on, but I just didn't have the exposure to autism as far as it being a spectrum as I probably should have at the time. And I went and got a diagnosis. And, you know, ever since then, my mission has been to kind of advocate for fellow autistics. What about people who are undiagnosed but suffer from autism? Are there a lot of people that fall into that category or is this something that's just completely unknown? I have a feeling there's less and less, but I think there are. I think there are people out there who, for whatever reason, either because they don't want to identify themselves as autistic and therefore don't really take the time to search it out because of the stigma, or, you know, it's just kind of irrelevant to them and they lead a kind of okay life and they don't need the diagnosis to be understood, at least self-understanding. So... I think there are, but I think because there's a lot more about autism now, you can't go anywhere without seeing the Big Bang Theory or 
certain shows on television, on Netflix that address autism, it's pretty saturated in our culture. And so back in 2004, most of us knew what autism was, but we were kind of confined to the Rain Man stereotype, which I was too, and that is um, as being like Rain Man. I'm, you know, I'm not a savant. I can't do things that the Dustin Hoffman character could do. I think today there's less and less of that. I think we know more about autism now as a culture, although I do think there are some people who are undiagnosed who probably could benefit from a diagnosis, but they, for whatever reason, don't realize that they're on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that spectrum, I know that Asperger's syndrome is somewhere on that spectrum, but that's all I know in terms of what is on that spectrum. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's at each end of that spectrum and what's in the middle? What does it really encompass? Well, the, the term Asperger's has actually been done away with. It is no longer in the DSM. They actually categorize autism by three different levels, and it's based on functionality. It's based on basically how much help and assistance you need from others. I would be probably, well, not probably, I know that I would be categorized as a level one autistic, and level two obviously requires more assistance, and level three requires a lot more assistance. It's not politically correct in the autism community to speak about functionality because it's presumed that everybody, whether they're nonverbal, that there's some level of competence inside the person. You just have to tap into it. But outwardly, a level one autistic could probably have a job, probably be married, but it would be very, very difficult. There would be some communication issues that would be, have to be worked through in the marriage. But a lot of autistic people, even level ones, are not employed. I mean, it's staggering the unemployment number for those on the spectrum is like 80 to 85 percent. And also we're talking about underemployed as well. So I don't want to make it sound like you're a level one, you know, have it easy and you're living a life of being stress-free because that's not how it is at all. But there is, there is a wide spectrum between uh, those who are nonverbal and have severe digestion issues and are banging their heads against the wall. And literally, I mean, there are people who cannot, who, who need diapers. I hate to be so blunt. There are people who just can't control that. And then you have people like Temple Grandin who have PhDs and who are teaching at major universities. So it's a wide, wide, wide spectrum. I see. How did you become an advocate for both people on the autism spectrum and for mystery reform? Well, it was not something that I chose, and I think you probably knew I was going to say that. This was not the goal that I had when I was 9 or 10 years old as to what I would be doing when I became an adult. But as I just mentioned, I had already been an advocate for those on the autism spectrum from the age of 27. So I was 27 when I got diagnosed. And then at age 33, I was arrested for possession of child pornography and that put me on the registry. And I'm very fortunate in that I did not go to prison. I'll say that until the day that I die. I'm very fortunate in that way and grateful because there are a lot of autistic people who do go to prison and the time that they have of it there is extremely not, I don't, I don't know what word I could use. It, excruciating doesn't do it justice. It's really a hard existence that these individuals have on the inside, even, even surviving a day. But that's how I became an advocate. Initially, when I got into this, as far as throwing both my hats in the ring, I had no idea that there was 
any kind of relationship between autism as a disability and the vulnerability that one might have to end up on the sex offender registry. I will never say that autism causes one to be a sex offender because it doesn't, and no amount of correlation can prove causation. But there are definitely vulnerabilities, and as we go throughout the interview, I can tell you how I found that out. But needless to say, I've been in contact with many families over the past eight or nine years, and the stories just sound very similar to mine. And unfortunately, the patterns that they experienced growing up and the fact that they didn't have a lot of dating experience and they didn't get to have the same kind of sexual outlets that a quote-unquote neurotypical, meaning non-autistic person, has, that didn't cause them to do what they did, but it certainly was a contributing factor. And so when you look at kind of a large swath of these people, you see very common similarities across the board. Mm -hmm. So you obviously believe that being autistic puts you at higher risk for ending up on the registry. Do you feel that there are other bad outcomes in the judicial system that autistic people are subject to? Absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, when you're on the spectrum, you're at risk for being taken advantage of. So, I mean, I think there are people who could use an autistic person as a pawn, basically, and the autistic person becomes the patsy. They do what the offender, the true offender, wants them to do, and then they're the one stuck holding the bomb, so to speak, and they're the one who gets in trouble. I've seen that scenario play out many, many times. I've seen scenarios. The biggest thing that we run into is encounters with the police, and that could be a driving situation where somebody gets pulled over, and their style of communication is not the typical style, and the police officer who has not been trained in that area of mental health, because obviously their job is to enforce the law, they misinterpret a lot of the behavioral cues that the autistic person gives off. And therefore, you know, you have encounters that can end with deadly consequences. And then you also have people who get arrested because of how they act when they are face-to-face -face with law enforcement. So, yeah, it, it's not just sex offenses. A lot of it is the miscommunication that the police officers have of the individuals on the spectrum, and not just police officers, but also judges. If a person with autism has trouble with their nervous laughter or they don't know that they're coming across a certain way and the judge interprets it a certain way, perhaps thinking that that person doesn't have remorse, yeah, that can have deadly consequences as far as extra years onto, onto a sentence simply because the judge read into something the wrong way. And I think that there's a lot of awareness across the board that needs to be gained in that area. Mm -hmm. Do you think the general public gets what you're doing? That's a very good question. I think uh, the general public, I think that there are certainly people who do get it, but I think there's a large segment of people that don't get it. There's certainly autistic people who think that I am kind of casting dispersions on autistic people by saying that they might have a greater vulnerability to being on the registry. And I just want to put that to rest. I truly believe, and I don't even just believe this, I know because of the research and because of personal experience, autistic people are way more likely to be victims of crime, victims, than perpetrators, okay? I mean, that I not only believe, but I know to be true. But the misunderstanding that autistic people have of, of the work that I do is something that I wish that I could communicate better that I'm on their side. 
and in no way the advocacy that I do is meant to limit their full inclusion in society. I think sometimes when you say that somebody is autistic and that might be part of the reason why they committed that crime, people on the autism spectrum get nervous that you're really saying, well, if somebody has an inclination to act a certain way, are you saying that we're like them and therefore is society going to try to limit us even more than they've already limited us? Because you have to remember, people with autism have been discriminated against and stigmatized for many years. So I do get where they're coming from. And I think if I was on the other side of the fence, I would feel the same way. I would feel like, hey, you're trying to paint me with a certain brush. That's not how we are. And I get that. I get that that they would feel that way. But really what I'm trying to do is heighten awareness so that we get better outcomes for people in the criminal justice system. But I'm also intensely interested in prevention, intensely interested in prevention. So if I can reach autistic people through this podcast or the work that I do, I'm going to be speaking in New Jersey next month to probably 200 people I'm going to be keynoting. If I can reach people that way and probably 90 of them will go, oh, yeah, I already know that. You know, what are you taking for, an idiot? But if there's two or three people in the audience that say, well, I I really didn't think about the mean, I thought I was alone in my room. I wasn't really hurting anyone. If that sinks in, because sometimes with autism, you don't see the big picture. And this is a big picture issue. And if certain people get that realization, then that would be very gratifying to me. But I wish they did understand. And I, cert- and I think sometimes maybe sex offenders think that I'm only advocating for those on the autism spectrum. I try to make it pretty clear on my Twitter feed that I think that everybody should get a second chance. But I've had interactions with certain people where they might think that autistic people should get special treatment, but all other sex offenders should be treated a certain way. So I'd like the public to understand what I'm doing, and I certainly have good intentions behind what I'm doing. Next up on our panel is Dwayne Daughtry, who is a blogger at the Subjective Belief blog, and he's got some questions for you too, Nick. Oh, great. Hey, Dwayne, how are you doing? Good, yourself, Nick. I'm so used to referring to Dr. Dubin, but it's, a, you know, it's great to call him Nick. If it weren't for you, really, I would not be in this Twitter universe. So thank you for being an advocate there, uh, giving me a platform of saying, hey, we're not alone out there. So you did a wonderful job of keeping me there. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. My question is, most people have heard of autism and have no clear understanding of what it is. I mean, that's just the general in public. Most people watch TV and they see the Big Bang, Rain Man, the good doctor, and they identify with the classical form. Do you think people are somewhat misguided about autism by pop culture in general? Yeah, I do. I think that we tend to think of autism in extremes. So, for example, we see the show The Good Doctor and we see a person clearly with savant skills, but very poor communication. And then on the other hand, we think of Rain Man, who's a little less functional, and we see somebody with savant skills. So I think that a lot of people assume that if you have autism, you have savant skills, and that's not necessarily true at all. I think a lot of people think if you have autism, there's no way you can get married, there's no way you can have a job, that you can't be functional. And I think actually, though, in the criminal justice system, the opposite is true. They presume competence prosecutors I'm talking about. So I think prosecutors will see someone with autism 
and say this person did hold down a job or this person got through two years of college. Even if they drop out, you know, they're going to try to use anything against the autistic person that they accomplished in life to say, hey, this person should have known better. So I think it cuts across a wide audience as far as a misunderstanding of autism. But every person is unique, and you'll always hear autistic people say, there's, there's kind of a saying that goes around, which is if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So we're kind of talking about snowflakes and not snowflakes being fragile, not th- that kind of snowflake, that every snowflake right. is unique. And autistic people are unique, and you can't box them or brand them all the same way. Do you think that prisons and jails are capable of identifying and treating people with autism? You know, no, I don't. I have spoken with many families of individuals who are in prisons and jails, and it's not a good culture for them. They have trouble. They have a hard enough time struggling on the outside. In prison, you're going to have people who intuitively just don't know how to pick up rules. And a lot of the rules in prison, I've never been in prison, But I know that you have to learn them on the fly. You don't get a manual which says, this is what you do at chow time. This is what you're supposed to say to this officer. You kind of learn that intuitively as time goes on. That's just not a strength of people on the spectrum. They're going to say, hey, this person was doing something. You better get them in trouble. You know, ratting kind of comes easily because people with autism want to see justice. So if they see somebody doing something they're not supposed to be doing, they're going to speak up about that. And in prison and jail, that's the worst possible place you can do that. And I also think it's bad because if they're charged with a sex offense, you're going to have a really hard time getting them to not talk about it. And that's something that Michael and I have talked about as far as when somebody enters prison, if you're charged with that, you just, you don't answer. You don't answer one way or the other. And I think a person on the spectrum, because they're not familiar with the subtleties at play, they might just say, yeah, this is what I'm charged with. Even if they were told in advance not to do it, it's kind of like for the autistic mind, I'm being asked a question, I'll answer, you know, what do I have to lose? I'll answer. And I also think that the guards are not well equipped to care for and basically maintain the mental health of individuals on the spectrum. I think that Frankly, a lot of them probably are skeptical of somebody with autism who is on the higher functioning end, may think that they're using that as a ruse or an excuse, and just wouldn't be very sensitive to them. So, yeah, I've heard nothing but horror stories, quite frankly, of people who have gone to prison, and I think it's a terrible place for them. It gives me an ability to think that the courts are missing out on an opportunity to include or recognize autism or other medical-based issues, such as a reasoning toward motive, to avoid this. It sounds like there's no study or no introduction at all to separate that. Yeah, there's research on prevalence of individuals with autism on the spectrum. I mean, autism in prison, but there's really no research that I've seen that goes to mens re. And I'd, I'd like to see more of that because I think there's a lot of crimes that people commit who are on the spectrum unwittingly. In other words, they don't know a lot of the times that they're committing a crime. Sometimes they do. And sometimes, you know, there are degrees. Somebody might have more awareness than another individual or less, less awareness than another individual. There are degrees of awareness. But the law judges it, did the person know A or did they not know B, when in reality, it's a little bit more subtle than that. And you can't just say, 
either they knew or they didn't know. But unfortunately, the way the legal system works, either you had criminal intent or you didn't. And for certain crimes, even if you didn't have mens re, if you're guilty, you're guilty. Strict liability. That's what it is. Strict liability crimes. So, yeah, I think there's a big opportunity for defense attorneys to educate prosecutors if they're willing to be educated, and certainly judges if they're not strapped by mandatory minimums. Whenever there's an opportunity to give a sentence of probation or even diversion where it won't end up on a person's record, that would be the ideal situation that a judge, or the ideal decision, I should say, that a judge can make. They can't always make that decision if a prosecutor is going to insist on bringing charges that carry a mandatory minimum. But when that is available, it's always the best decision because when a person with autism comes out of prison or jail, they're going to be in much, and this is true for anyone, of course, but especially someone on the spectrum is going to be in much worse shape than uh, when they went in. Well, thank you very much. I really look forward to meeting you one day, and I'm sure we could talk all day about autism spectrums. There's other people that have questions, and Shauna, I know you've got to have a lot of questions. I actually do. Thank you, Dwayne. Hello, Nick. Hi, Shauna. How are finally you? finally meet you. I'm doing wonderful today. Thank you for asking. I want to kind of jump on a couple things that I've just heard you talk about that makes a lot of sense. With the autism and you talking about how the is there criminal intent or like the knowledge of criminal misdoings, is that something that you're very focused on as far as whether or not somebody understands what they have done, whether it's a mental issue or otherwise? Well, it's important after the fact that they understand what they did because you can't base uh, low recidivism on somebody who doesn't understand the implications after the fact. And my experience has been that with people on the spectrum, they have very, very strong consciences and they have a very strong moral compass. They like, they like to follow rules and they like to act the right way. They like to avoid wrong and do right. So once they know, hey, look, this is why this is not legal. You know, there are actual victims that you're looking at. And once that awareness is pressed through on an autistic person, I have not known very many cases, probably two or three people on the spectrum out of maybe the hundreds that I've heard of or that our family has talked to who have reoffended. It's very, very rare. So yes, it is very important that a person with autism understand what, why what they did was against the law. And it's not like somebody should say, oh, because you're autistic, you didn't do a bad thing, and therefore we're going to give you a pass. No. I mean, they obviously need to know why what they did was wrong. I think it's not fair, though, when society presumes that they should have known, because that's not always part of what a person with autism can see. But once they're told and reinforced over and over again what the correct way to do is or to act and follow the law, then there's really no excuse at that point. Then the person knows, they know the reason why it's been drilled in through repetition over and over again. And therefore, that's why we see low recidivism from people on the spectrum, because they are very receptive to treatment. Right. I would actually even strengthen that statement and say that most on the registry, because with the 14 and a half years that I did in group, maybe one guy that didn't seem very remorseful, but most if they're told and they understand exactly the pain and, and, and what has happened, very remorseful and very low recidivism rate. 
also, do you think it would benefit, because you're about education and awareness prevention, which is something mm-hmm. all of us agree with, do you think it would be beneficial to educate our law enforcement on every level of that law enforcement on special needs like this? Because, like you said, a laugh, a inappropriate way to respond. When, when somebody was in my face when I was a younger child, I'd laugh at them, like you said. It was, like, scary for me, and it just came out as I'd laugh. Now I'm not that way. I'm a much stronger person now. But those inappropriate, like you don't know why it happened, but it came out and they're misreading it or things of that nature or even a special, I don't know, understanding of the whole mental health issue as far as any criminal justice is concerned. I do. And in fact, my parents and I have been organizing a conference that's going to happen in Rochester, Michigan at Oakland University with four or five different speakers. Some of those speakers are defense attorneys, prosecutors. There's a couple from St. Louis whose son is currently incarcerated. And we want to educate lawyers. We're inviting lawyers and prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, police. That's who we're targeting. We want them to come and we want to let them know who they are interacting with on a daily basis, not only on the beat and on the patrols, but also in the courtrooms. This is who you're dealing with. And like I said, every person is unique. Every person is going to have a different mindset as far as those on the spectrum. But there are commonalities, and we want to educate people so that wrong decisions aren't made. Because when prosecutors make decisions that are not based on solid information, they can ruin lives. And that's true whether somebody is autistic or not. But when they're basing their decisions on ignorance or as you said, on behavior that's miscommunicated or on something that ends up in the pre-sentence report that gets misconstrued by the probation officer who's writing it because they interpreted somebody with autism not showing remorse, because remorse does not come through in the traditional way for someone on the spectrum a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone should be educated, probation officers, police, anybody who has any involvement, even psychologists who write forensic reports, A lot of these people do not have a lot of knowledge about autism, and yet they're writing these long forensic reports on individuals based on very little education and training in this very specific area. And I always get nervous when somebody is being evaluated by somebody who doesn't know that much about autism because that report is going to be heavily relied upon, and a lot of misinformation can go in there. So I totally agree with that, Sean. I think there has to be. I agree with that, absolutely. Society as a whole um, needs to be educated, but that's a whole different conversation. Now, I do have one more question, and then I'm going to pass it over to Daniel. He's a blogger at Harvard to the bighouse.com. Really great to have Daniel here tonight. But I have one more question before I let you go, Nick. How would you, let me ask it this way, how would you advise people who have a loved one who is dealing with any level of autism or any level of mental health issues? How would you advise them to communicate with their children or young teenagers or young adults about sex and how they would be able to receive it the best, I guess, is the best way to say it? That's a really, really good question. And let me tell you why I think that's such a great question. Because a lot of times people on the autism spectrum do not outwardly show an interest in sex. They wish they had a girlfriend, they wish they could have a partner, but because it's so hard for them, they just don't talk about it. So their parents then assume, oh, my son is not interested in sex. He doesn't 
seem to want a girlfriend. Maybe he does on the inside, but he's not talking about it. And therefore, because the person with autism has so many other issues in life, maybe they're struggling in school, maybe they got fired from their job, whatever. I mean, there could be a number of different issues, but because this issue doesn't come up, it stays underground. And because it stays underground, it's like an earthquake where the plates keep rubbing against each other and all of a sudden there's going to be a 7.5 earthquake. It has to be dealt with. The conversations have to be had between parents and their children and with bringing professionals in. And people with autism, people on the spectrum need to feel safe to talk about about these issues and to talk about their sexuality. A lot of times gender sexuality is very fluid in people with autism. Studies have shown this, that gender identity tends to be very, very fluid across the board, much more so than the general population. And you can imagine these are very confusing feelings that a person can have. Anybody could have confusing feelings, even a neurotypical. If someone with autism isn't allowed to talk about these things or they don't feel like they're allowed or given safe space, then you're, I think, waiting for a crisis to happen because they don't know what to do with these feelings. And so what can I do? Well, I can go on the computer because there's things on the computer and I don't have to interact right. with anybody and I'm in a safe space. And, and I'm not saying that this, this would happen for every person. In fact, it doesn't for most people. But this is where I say that it is a vulnerability. I mean, just common sense would tell you that if you struggle interacting with people in the world, a computer is much safer than actually having to deal with people. So I think that's important that they're able to talk about it. And also that we, that we mentioned the prevention piece, that this is something that can get you into a lot of trouble. Now, they may say, well, I would never do that. But, you know, you got to hammer it home because that's a different They may not know they're doing something wrong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah. I, it has to be repeated over and over again. And I think that's something to do with our children in general, especially with the technology today. But there's a lot of laws that almost make it hard for anyone to have the communication rights almost anymore to be able to speak upon these things with their children or with anybody with mental illness because it can be construed in different ways. It's a frustrating topic, so thank you. Thank you, Shauna. I'm going to pass you on to Daniel. You're welcome. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Thanks, Shauna. Hey, Daniel. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'm really glad I had a chance to talk to you. I know we bounced off of Twitter back and forth a little bit, but the autism topic is near and dear to my heart after spending 20 months in my prison special education classroom. I was a teacher's aide there, and we had young men who were all 18 to 22, most of whom were arrested before their 18th birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had educational disabilities, meaning the federally they were required to be offered education until they were 22 years old, at which point mm-hmm. the teacher had to kick them out of class. She kept some kids around, but not most of them. You know, some young men. But as the aide, I had, I had the responsibility to send their parents invitations to meetings and to keep track of their grades. And I saw their files. And every single one of them had an educational disability, whether it was due to unknown lead paint being dropped on their head when they were little, other trauma. These guys clearly had a cognitive issue. They weren't atypical neurologically as an autistic person was, but clearly there were deficits going on. And when I learned about mens rea, I'm really glad you mentioned that earlier, I was baffled when I actually talked to an attorney who was in a halfway house with me. And the way mens rea or having a guilty mind is handled is either you're completely out of in touch with reality and you go to a psychiatric ward, or you're not. 99% of the time, it's completely binary. And that floored me. Because these guys in my classroom, some of them were arrested when they were 15. 
and they're in inner city Baltimore, don't have a lot of parental supervision. And for them, going to do a carjacking, the gun's not loaded, was kind of the inner city Baltimore version of egging a house for a suburban kid as far as wrongdoing. What could go wrong? What could happen? They're not thinking it through. And so I was kind of just wondering for you, what would your ideal be in our legal system? Because for me, keeping whether it's autism, whether it's mental deficiencies from any number of environmental factors, treating everybody as a crime they committed and just labeling as you committed a carjacking, an armed robbery, a burglary, a sex offense. And then some judges were reasonable. I mean, a handful of my students were very, very lucky and that for whatever reason, their judge showed discretion. But right. they didn't have to. There's nothing in the system saying, hey, Your Honor, you're going to have to learn some neurology, some developmental psychology. People become judges just by becoming judges. They either get appointed directly or voted in. But at no point do they have to demonstrate any awareness of any of this psychology, neurology, neurobiology, any of it. So from your standpoint, what would you see as an ideal kind of turnout? Let me make a a distinction. I think as far as sex offenses across the board, the registry for autistic people and for non-autistic people needs to go. So having said that, because I think it's very important that I make that point. But when we're talking about individuals on the spectrum who may or may not have known what they were doing was against the law. I think you got to, it has to be taken on a case by case basis. I wouldn't want to say every person on the autism spectrum should get diversion. You have to basically have each case looked at by a forensic psychologist, maybe a forensic psychologist on both sides, a defense and a prosecution. But Ideally, I would say in the majority of cases, I would vote for diversion. I think that somebody on the autism spectrum is typically not going to be, quote unquote, offense oriented. If they did commit an offense, it most likely is what we would call counterfeit deviance, which is deviance that looks like deviance. It's like counterfeit money. It looks like money, but it's not really money. It might look like deviance if they were following the gang leader and doing what they were asked to do, and yet they're the one who are caught with their pants down. Those are the kinds of things that need to be explained. And if it can be shown that the person had difficulties early on, and this is where you'd want to assemble a team of people who could go through early educational reports, IEPs, you want it really well documented. And one of the problems that people run into in the criminal justice system is they get their diagnosis after they were arrested. And that is the Mm -hmm. biggest obstacle that I see. Prosecutors and judges are very skeptical. If you get a diagnosis of autism, once you've gotten into the system, they typically poo-poo it. Even if you're able to show hey, I had all the, you know, you can bring up the IEPs and, you know, I had some issue. I knew that I was different and I had learning disabilities and ADD and even Tourette syndrome or whatever, but I just, I never happened to get diagnosed with autism, but I was legitimately diagnosed. Nope, sorry, we don't believe you. So ideally, you would want a person to be diagnosed with autism before they get into the system. But regardless of that, my personal opinion is if somebody is on the spectrum and assuming a clinician actually diagnoses a person on the spectrum, we're going to believe they're on the spectrum, then if they can show that they are truly remorseful, that they understand what they did was wrong, that they did have different cognitive processes that were going on in comparison to, the, to a neurotypical offender, I think judges need to appreciate that. And that's where the education piece that I was speaking about earlier when I was talking to Sean, it becomes so important because, yeah, judges are under no uh, continuing education requirement when it comes to mental health or Not even continuing. I mean, once you take the LSAT, you get into law school, you pass yeah. the bar yeah. for your state, and then you become a lawyer, and then after, say, five, maybe ten years, 
there's an opening. And sometimes there's an election. Sometimes you get appointed by the governor or whoever it might be. And then that's it. You're a judge. And when I learned that, it was somehow I assumed there was two years of judge school or a Ph.D. in judgeship <laughs> or something. But there's literally nothing. They can read briefs if they want. Some states have a few weeks of training when I've been able to, to find out, talking to people and researching online. But no one has any kind of mandatory, you need to pass a test about, if you're going to practice, say, criminal law in a juvenile court. Well, of course you should have at least six months of developmental psychology or something along those lines to have a framework to understand the young men and young women in front of you in your court are likely products of some pretty crappy environment. It's so crazy to me that there isn't more of an emphasis on so much of a science that's developed over the past 200 I, I years. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, when we, if we expand beyond autism, so much of what we see in the criminal justice system have mental illness issues at their root. Right. And every other profession pretty much requires continuing education credits for issues that are relevant to their field. You know, an optometrist has to learn about things that they may not ever use, but they still have to learn them. And mental illness illness or mental health is pretty central to what a judge does. He's going to see probably six defendants a day with mental health issues. And the fact that they're not, or mental illness, and the fact that they're not required to learn about them is pretty astonishing. I mean, my particular judge, who is a very good judge, and I felt treated me very fairly, but he was honest. And he said, until I read your pre-sentencing report, I didn't know that autism was a developmental disability. I always thought of it as just a, as a mental illness that one can get, like depression. And I kind of appreciated that honesty. And what I really appreciated was he was open to learning new information. I mean, so many judges wouldn't say that. It's just very strange to me. I think we're back to Michael now. Thank you, Daniel. Nick, I've got a question for you. Have you ever heard of anyone being diagnosed with autism after their arrest? Oh, yeah. I mean, that is something that happens all too often. And I just spoke about that. It is, puts one at a great disadvantage. If they're diagnosed with autism after the arrest, everybody takes a skeptical attitude that this person must be paying a psychiatrist a lot of money to come up with the diagnosis. We hear about that all the time. And these are people who clearly do have autism. I mean, you hear about what they went through in childhood. They had speech delays. They had writing issues. They had trouble socializing with their peers. They had sensory issues. I mean, there's no question about it. But yet prosecutors will say they got their diagnosis after the arrest. That's pretty convenient. We're not necessarily buying it. And those are heartbreaking stories because those are the people that tend to get greater sentences. They get longer prison sentences. If you have a diagnosis before you're arrested, you're going to probably do a little bit better because prosecutors are going to be a little less skeptical. I'm not saying that's always going to be the case, but just as a general rule, if you have the diagnosis before the arrest, the system's going to look at you with less uh, skepticism. I see. I have another question, and this one has more to do with people who have autism, not as targets of law enforcement or people on the registry, but as associates of registrants. And let me give you a little bit of background. There's somebody that I am very close to who felt obligated to warn me after I was released from incarceration that her adult son with Asperger's syndrome lives with her and it could be problematic if I ever visited their home simply because I'm on a registry and he is considered developmentally disabled in the eyes of the law. 
Have, right. have you heard of many situations like that? And what's your take on it? Yeah, I've heard of it because that actually happened to me. One of the special conditions that was originally assigned to me was that I couldn't be with my cousin. I have a first cousin who is also on the autism spectrum, and I couldn't be with him unsupervised. And I had always been with him unsupervised. He's older than me. He's like 10 years older than me. And we've always gone to restaurants and done things together. We're very close. We both have autism. And we actually challenged that condition because I was able to show that, you know, this is a family member. Obviously, this is somebody I would never hurt. And that was taken off so that I could actually be with him. But yeah, that is something I personally experienced. And I have heard of other instances where that's happened. I'd also like to hear your opinion on how court-mandated sex offender treatment programs deal with people with autism. I'm really glad you asked me that. I was hoping somebody would ask me that tonight. I think that in general, you definitely need treatment for individuals on the spectrum. But the kind of sex offender treatment that is given, I don't think it's good for anyone. I'm not going to just say it's bad for people with autism. I think, it, I think it's terrible. But I think to subject people with autism to it is, would be extremely traumatizing, extremely traumatizing. Because a lot of the communication that's going on in the group would be missed by the autistic person. And they, because they had a different mindset when they committed the crime, they may not understand how could somebody have done all these things and I'm part of this group. So it's confusing when they're with a group leader who is always saying that, you know, you are a bad individual and you're always going to have these tendencies. The way that people with autism sometimes tend to process information is in very black and white terms. So they're going to hear that and say, I am bad. I am bad. I can't help it. I've got to always be hypervigilant. And we, we do want them to be hypervigilant, but we don't want them to internalize these feelings of being so bad, which is what happens in these groups. And I would be very afraid that it would actually have a counterproductive consequence, that it might increase the risk of reoffending, because you're reinforcing the opposite message of what you want to get across the autistic individual. No, you're actually a good person. You made a choice. Maybe you were aware of it, and it was a, it, you know, it's something you'll never do again. But we want to build up a strong set of skills for you that you can enjoy life and never go back to this. And unfortunately, these groups don't do that. They don't do it for non-autistic uh, people, but they certainly uh, wouldn't do it for autistic people. And I would add as a last comment to this that I think in general, individualized therapy for autistic people is much more preferable to group therapy. I just think that when you get that one person who understands you without the distractions of other people and you can build that trusting relationship, I've seen it work. It's not only worked with me, but it's worked with a lot of people on the spectrum when they can find that one individual who's conducting the therapy in a way that's conducive for the individual on the spectrum. But no, I think sex offender treatment for autistic individuals would be a train wreck. I see. Now, whenever we talk about SOTP programs, sex offender treatment programs, it never fails to get Shauna's hackles up. So she's got a question for you. <laughs> sure, sure. Nick, I agree with you that that treatment is not good for anybody. I didn't realize it while I was in the group for 14 and a half years. I only realized wow. it in the last six months. Like, because of the deprogramming I've done for myself and my self-work, that I've realized how black and white it really made me feel. 
like I was bad. I'm bad. This is bad. You know, this is good. This is bad. And all of that. So my question is, because I know this as a human being, but so much more with mental health, reiterating bad, 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 like you just said, it not only brings it up as a higher recidivism rate, and I'm not talking about sex offense, I mean anything, but isolating people to feel that they're bad and solitude and isolation is very different. Solitude you chose, isolation can be just people pushing you away. So the more that happens and the more feeling understood, the therapy should be switched. There should be so much training on what needs to be done with this from people who have went through it. Oh, absolutely. I think that the people that they hire to do these programs, these government contractors are an absolute joke. A lot of them have social work degrees, but they, they don't have that much training in this area. And I think you need people who are clinicians who have done the research, who know that this population is not likely to reoffend, and therefore you would apply a different kind of model. You'd apply a, something more like the good lives model as opposed to the containment model, which basically tries to contain impulses, contain behavior, contain whatever you know might come leaping out of that person at any given moment. And yeah, a person on the spectrum, again, is going to internalize, as you said, you did for 14 years and didn't realize kind of that you were kind of being programmed in a certain way until the last six months. Someone on the spectrum who, you know, looks up to authority, a person says this is true, so therefore it must be true. That's really dangerous programming, really dangerous programming. And I think there has to be a lot more training across the board. Um, and I think it's really insufficient, and I'd like to see more of it. Okay, Nick, Dwayne has a question for you about your writing. So take it away, Dwayne. Thank you. I wanted to ask a question of what book have you written that will connect the offenses and autism? Do you have anything, any suggestions or maybe some books that you haven't written? Well, I wrote a book with Tony Atwood and Isabel Hanol. They're two experienced autism clinicians and they work with this population. And I basically wrote the book about my experience as I was going through the experience. And I wrote about my life kind of starting from early childhood through the time of the arrest. And as I was writing it, I realized, do I really want to use my real name or do I want to use a pen name? And I had written the whole book and I realized if I was going to use a pen name, I would have to change virtually every detail about the book because there had already been a news story about my case. I was pretty well known in the autistic community at the time. So people knew what I, what I was interested in. They knew where I lived. They knew I liked tennis and jazz. I'd have to change all those things. And so my publisher actually contacted me after my arrest and said, there's really nothing on this. It would be very invaluable for our community if we could have a first-person account. And, I, you know, you can imagine being approached like that. It was like, no, I, there's no way that I would do that. I, you know, I, I don't want my next-door neighbor to know, you know. But that's how it unfolded, and that's why I'm using my real name, because of that book. Had it, had it not been for that book and probably the news story prior to that, I would be using a pseudonym on social media and on Twitter. So I give a very honest account, and my account is not going to be the, it's not going to look like every other person's account, but it's pretty, it's pretty typical of what I've seen as far as my dad. Speaking of my dad, my dad also wrote a chapter for that book. Once that book was published, over the last maybe six or seven years, we've gotten probably 100 or 150 phone calls because people have learned that my dad is a law professor, that he 
He's also very active in this field. So we're able to hear these family stories because they know that I've written a book and they connect it to my father and then they look up his email and they get in contact with him. So that's how I know how this tends to go down for people on the spectrum because we've had so much contact with other people. And as far as the literature in general, there isn't as much as I'd like there to be. And I think a lot of that will hopefully change in the coming years, but it's been constricted because it's a very uh, touchy subject. And I, I think people are kind of afraid to get near it and afraid to examine it, but I'd, I'd like to see that change. How can people get in touch with you and learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Well, they can definitely reach me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is N-I-C-O-L-A-S-D-1977. And if you tweet at me and you want to be in touch with me, then I will follow you and then you can send me a direct message. So that probably would be the best way to get in contact with me. Super. I just want to thank you again for being our guest this evening. You and I have been talking for several months, and I consider you to be a friend and as close a friend as you can be on Twitter, at least. And I do look forward to meeting you someday soon at one of these events. But thank you so much for being here. I think you've addressed something that very few people really ever give much thought to. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. I enjoyed talking to all of you. And please send my prayers along to Elizabeth on my behalf. I will absolutely do that. Thanks so much for being here, Nick. You've been listening to Registry Report Radio. Our hosts this evening were Dwayne Daughtry, Shauna Baldwin, and Daniel Sorotkin, who is joining us for the first time this evening. He blogs at harvardtothebighouse.com. Check him out, and hopefully we'll see a little bit more of him as we go forward with Registry Report Radio. I want to thank you again for listening. Please tell your friends about our show and follow us on blogtalkradio.com. My name is Michael McKay, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week.